You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Welcome to Coronavirus Crisis Update. I'm Jay Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I want to take this opportunity to announce our brand new podcast series, Pandemic Planet, that's just launched. COVID-19 pandemic has exposed weaknesses in U.S. global health security approaches while triggering massive health, economic, and social crises around the world. Pandemic Planet focuses on renewing high-level U.S. international leadership, including the quest for affordable access to COVID-19 vaccines. It tracks closely with the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We take you behind the scenes with insights from diverse global experts and leaders to help you understand the evolving pandemic response, the critical global decision points on the horizon, and what our next best options are for improving health security for the United States and the rest of the planet. You can subscribe and listen to our first episode with Seth Berkeley, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, wherever you get your podcasts. The Coronavirus Crisis Update series, highly successful, will continue with a predominant focus on COVID-19 in America. Let's listen to this next episode. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Chris Murray, Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome, Chris. It's great to have you back with us, December 14th, the day of the first vaccinations in the United States against COVID-19. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Great to be back. We want to reflect on what was learned here in 2020. This is an extraordinary year, unlike any other year. Uh, And so we wanted to direct to you a question around what does this mean for modeling? I mean, what did you learn this year, this extraordinary year of the coronavirus pandemic about modeling, both the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, what were the affirmative lessons, the hard truths, the new revelations? Modelers are some suddenly on the big global stage with vastly higher attention and scrutiny than normal. It's no longer a boutique niche for the quant experts, and you're a very competitive bunch. Your numbers have risen somewhat, but it's still a pretty pretty specialized, small number of very competent performers. And it's obviously been an unprecedented test of knowledge, methods, approaches, adaptability, accuracy, and utility of models. So tell us, how are you looking back on this year? What, what was learned? That's a really interesting question. I, I think... If you go back, you know, most infectious disease modeling, except for some of the flu forecasts in the U.S. and some other European countries, but most of them were historically very academic, asking very abstract questions or very hypothetical questions. And what COVID has done has uh, created a demand for two types of models. One is the sort of What's going to happen in the next six weeks? Because that's what hospitals want to know to plan or health systems. And then what's going to happen in the next six months or three to six months? Because that's what politicians or policymakers want to know. And that's, you know, 
sort of new terrain in, in many ways, because most of the modeling efforts in the past have been uh, these sort of abstract scenarios. And the reason it's, it's pretty different is that for this disease, as opposed to, let's say, seasonal flu, there is a huge individual behavioral component as to what's going to happen in a you know three to six month time frame. And there's a huge government behavioral component. Will they put mandates in place or not? Those questions in the past were not relevant to seasonal flu because there weren't going to be mandates. There wasn't really behavioral adaptation and certainly weren't very relevant at all to most of the other models that are out there. So suddenly you have the modeling community being asked to essentially uh, do what economists do, model human individual behavior and, and other fields, and do what quantitative political scientists do, which is try to predict the behavior of governments. And I'd say that that's been a steep learning curve where it's, you know, it's a different type of model. Some modelers have said, I'm not even going to try. So they, there's this term floating around there, which I find slightly paradoxical, where some people will say their model is a factual model. What they mean by that is that they're not going to take into account any behavioral change or government response, meaning it's sort of it's the easy task. It's like, what if we just froze the world today and ran forward, even though we know that's not going to happen? And what's the answer to that question? So I think a lot of modelers have struggled with this endogenous behavioral response and with the government response part. It was too big a shift, just conceptually and intellectually. Different toolkit, different intellectually. And so, you know, some are saying, I just don't even want to do that. And then others, like ourselves and a number of other groups, have tried, albeit imperfectly. And I think the government part of that remains the hardest to do. And why is that? Because I think we're seeing pretty marked differentiation in different parts of the world of how governments are reacting. You know, I think the governments in Europe this fall have probably seemingly reacted faster. You know, mm -hmm. they, they've bought yeah. into the idea they need to act before the economy really gets hit. And we've seen more reluctance, except for some states, in the U.S. Although I think there is a common ingredient that we're seeing, which is when hospitals start to be overwhelmed, regardless of political position, we're seeing governments start to take action. Once they face the prospect of triage wartime medicine in their state or their community. Yeah, that, that's just politically really hard to handle. If you're saying we don't have a bed for you, if your family member or loved one needs an ICU bed. And that's where ideology and, and, and denialism begins to fade away a little bit. Yep, I think largely. But even then, we've seen a lot of intransigence in the Dakotas. Like even yeah. when things are pretty bad, we're seeing some places who are just not responding. But it's quite an exception. Andrew, you want to jump in on this? Yeah. Chris, tell us about what you think the biggest challenge is going to be, you know, going from Q1 into Q2, you know, with the vaccine hitting us now. You know, people think that this is you know, really the light at the end of the tunnel. But we know that there's going to be problems ahead and that Q1 and Q2 could be pretty, very bad. Well, you know, in our models and our thinking, Q1 is very bad, right? It's bad for us in the U.S. It's bad in Canada. It's bad in Europe because we're still in the throes of seasonal intensification of transmission. 
And, you know, the vaccine is extraordinary achievement of science. It's been done at record speed, but it's coming not soon enough to do that much on what happens between now and let's say the mid-February. So if you put all the numbers together, which we try to do in our scenario around vaccination now, uh, we will start to see some meaningful impact on daily death counts from vaccination starting in mid-February and then growing after that. Growing in a good way. In a good way. We'll start to see yeah. a bigger impact of vaccination. But we're entering also at the same time about then the seasonality starting to, to go down. So things will start to look way better, you know, come March. You know, probably sometime between the beginning of the March to the middle of the month, things will start to go down. And I really think that there will be this sort of collective sense in the U.S. Uh, a little bit later in Europe, given the vaccine scale up of, you know, we're over the main hump come April. And then what we'll see is that vaccination after that, you know, pretty horrendous next three months will get us back to normal dramatically faster than without it. Is that true if people abandon their behavioral? Well, that's the part that's super interesting, right? Which is what do we think will happen amongst those who are vaccinated? You know, what fraction will stop wearing a mask? What fraction will just go back to normal life? And will that have a knock-on effect on people around them? Like if I go to the store and half the people don't have a mask, you know, your tendency to keep your mask on goes down, we think. So there may be this sort of, you know, unfortunate knock-on effect of a subset of the vaccinated sort of, you know, not being careful. Uh, there was some YouGov survey data out recently that suggested that that may only be a quarter or a third of vaccinated individuals who are going to stop being careful. And then that, it, that interacts with whether the vaccine blocks transmission. And I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, buried in the AstraZeneca report in The Lancet, was some good news that at least the AstraZeneca vaccine seems to block infection as well as severe disease, at least in a more than half of, of those vaccinated. So that's two things interacting, you know, mean the impact of sort of the behavioral response. We're back to modeling behavior of people who get vaccinated may not be as bad as it would be if the vaccine had no effect on transmission. You know, we were talking to Tony Fauci earlier today and asking him the question of, how long do we think it's going to take to resolve, scientifically resolve, the question of how much immunity will be conferred? Will it block transmission? Will a person who's carrying the disease, who's infected, but get, who gets vaccinated, will that person transmit to others? All big uncertainties, right? Along with how it works with pregnant women, how it works with children. He was saying could be all the way to the end of the year before, uh, end of 2021, before these scientific unknowns are chased to ground. Now it may come sooner, but it does seem to me that we're heading into a period where there are going to be some unknowns still with us that are going to complicate the understanding of what you get when you get vaccinated and what the continued risk is going to be. And people are going to be, I think the natural tendency is going to be people want to get out from underneath this. So they get a vaccine. I don't know how many times you're going to message them about you got to still wear that mask. You got to still distance. You got to still stay away from bars. Right. This is what I'm worried about. Because I mean, like, isn't it going to be human nature, much less there's, you know, 
a large portion of Americans right now who are ignoring the guidance, who are living their best lives. So people are going to get vaccinated and they're going to think, okay, well, this is a, a free for all. And what's that going to do to the models? Yeah, I think it's a it's a real risk. I think the idea that once vaccination rates get to, a, you know, some considerable numbers, you know, once we're in April, the seasonalities, the numbers are down every day. Vaccination numbers are up every day. I think at that point, it's going to be people are going to bounce back to pre-COVID behavioral patterns very quickly. And so it'll be a balancing act there. I do think for the U.S., because we have a jump on most people, we have a lot of doses bought, we're starting pretty early, that it'll probably play out to, you know, reasonably well because of everything working together. Seasonality is going to be helping at the same time these, these behavioral, you know, responses occur. May be much worse in Latin America, less vaccine, you know, they'll be heading into winter. And it's really hard to know what, how it'll play out in, in some other parts of the world. But I think on balance, we're going to be in a surprisingly decent place in the U.S., I think, by June, July. You don't see the possibility of a kind of rocky roller coaster sort of phase of February, March, April, May, June, where people are relaxing their behavior, changing, returning to normal patterns prematurely, and we're getting reignition, and we don't have the testing and contact tracing in place. And so we just get this reignition and it, things bounce around and we're not able to chase it down and control it very well. Definitely in February and March. I think the question in my mind is how mixed is April? But if we are seeing, you know, 100 million, 150 million people vaccinated by end of April, maybe more, combined with a bad winter where a lot of people got infected anyway, we are getting up to some pretty high numbers in terms of those who are at least functionally protected or, or immune. And we have seasonality really starting to kick in. So we have about 15 million people, well, 16.3 million people infected in the United States estimated today. And that's probably low, right? Way more than that. The, the, that's the number of, you know. Proving cases. Yeah, that's cases. Now, we think that the infection detection rate, you know, cases divided by infections back in April and March was like 5%. And then it's been steadily rising in the U.S. So that we're probably up in the 30 to 40% range right now nationally. So if you take the seroprevalence data from CDC yeah. and look at the numbers, you know, we're, you know, probably, you know, in the in the mid-teens in terms of the fraction of the U.S. that are infected. And, you know, we have about three months ahead. So that number will get us into the, you know, mid-20s. So we'll probably have, you know, sadly, by April 1st, we probably have 25% that will have been infected. Some in that ballpark, I can give you a more precise number. It's actually on our website. So you're saying today about 15% of Americans are, have been infected. Something in that range, yeah. And that could rise by 10% in the course of the surge. 10 percentage points by, the, by then, and then you start to bolt on the vaccination. So then you're right. starting to get up to numbers that really, even if it's not herd immunity, it'll be putting the brakes on transmission. And then you add into that the seasonality part. So even with some behavioral response, which I'm sure there will be, I think the question on the roller coaster is April, maybe 
maybe a little bit of May, but I do think by the summer, we are going to not be having a lot of transmission. I'm sure there'll be some, but I think the national mood will be really, really different. And what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean people are going to be going to movie theaters, going to sporting events, going to concerts? People are going to be going back to, you know, normal. Our kids are going to be back in school in the fall, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I think kids will be back in school in the fall. I think we're going to see enormous pressure on governors, the federal government to allow things, gatherings, you know, come the summer. And it, whether they go or not is going to be less about people's willingness to do it because there'll be a subset of the population who will be definitely willing. I think it'll be whether, you know, governors or the federal government want to take those risks. And I think that depends really on, you know, what the, the kick, the double hit of seasonality coming down and vaccination going up. Is that enough to, to have the numbers dropping, you know, every day uh, in April? And then you start to get a very different mindset. This might be a, a really silly question, but how are we going to know and when are we going to know that these vaccines are really going to work? You, what do you, well, we know from the trials they work, but you, yeah. what do you mean by that? They've been in the trials for 40,000 people, right? And there's a lot of people out there that, don't believe the science. There's a lot of people that are going to be scared to take the vaccination or they don't believe in vaccinations. So there's going to be people who refuse to take it. And we're going to, you know, you said we're going to try to get 150 million people vaccinated by, you know, early summer. How are we going to know that we get to this herd immunity or that we get to a critical mass of vaccinations where it actually is working? That's super tricky to know because of seasonality, right? So if we're right, we're going to see really low numbers in the summer. And then there'll be this lingering question, depending on, you know, how many people refuse to take the vaccine. Have, have we vaccinated enough? Is it sustaining immunity long enough? And have, you know, we counted correctly the number of people infected in the past so that when we come to the winter of 2021, nothing happens, right? That's going to be the lingering question because, you know, the, the, the case counts are going to go down for that double reason, but we may not be at herd immunity, but we'll know <laughs> come December next year, right? And the thing about it is the fall, it won't be a fall surge because there'll be enough people vaccinated, enough people who've been infected that it'll just push things later in the year. So we will have, I suspect, some contingent of people saying, hey, hold on, things might suddenly re-erupt. And that, you know, you, you can make a model that says that won't happen until, you know, late December, early January, and depending on how you set your, your model up. But that will remain a possibility unless, of course, we get up to, you know, 280 million people vaccinated or some some huge numbers where vaccination alone will be, will, will be enough. Do you think that's attainable? You know, I don't know. It really depends on the campaigns to get the maybes, right? So if you look at the straight refusers, it's not so many. Nationally, the people who say, I will not take the vaccine, is nationally only in the 15 to 20% range. There's another 30% roughly who are, depending on the survey, in the maybe category. So how we fare on convincing the maybes depends 
very much in what'll what'll take place, and that'll depend on you know our political leaders, our you know our cultural leaders who are you know say yes, I'm going to champion taking the vaccine, and then no bad adverse you know outcomes that then get picked up and reported. And what do you make, Chris, of the fact that there has been no national messaging campaign undertaken by the national government, by our national government, our federal government? There were talk about it, but it got scrapped. Now you have the Ad Council coming forward with something, and you have a bunch of other things. But basically, we don't have much of a strategy of getting the maybes in the door. I am presuming, Steve, that come the inauguration, there will be a change of outlook, a lot more push on that national messaging. Uh, I'll be really surprised if pretty much all of the major professional sports don't all take the vaccine and that'll that'll have some benefit because you'll have all the major sports heroes likely saying hey I got vaccinated. So I mean I think there'll be lots of opportunities to get you know move move the needle on the maybes. We could see a situation Chris where the vaccination campaigns and coverage are done fast and pretty successfully in a cluster of states New England for instance and a few other places, and then we've got a lot of other places that have really crappy plans or no plans and low commitment and and began with weak health infrastructure, public health infrastructure to begin with, and they got attitudinal problems all up the chain in terms of their the leadership of the state. And you know, we, we know where those states are. So we could wind up with large swaths of territory and populations that are mostly red that don't get very far very fast. We can get to herd immunity, but we're going to have this blotchy map with, you know, where we don't vacation in certain places that have beautiful parks anymore. What do you think? And we don't like to fly there either, and we don't want them flying here. You know, I think the in addition to all the lives that get saved through vaccination, which will start to be important, you know, in March and, and onwards, the the huge potential beneficiary of vaccination are small businesses in the US. Right. They they're the ones who are hit hard. And I think every small business owner is gonna recognize this. And I think they will start to lobby their local government, their state government, their party to like get with the program and and save their livelihoods. I think everybody starts to row in the same direction. Doesn't mean you're going to get everybody getting vaccinated, but my goodness, if vaccination can save your livelihood, I think people will really push hard on that. Well, it's true that there's lots of sectors that have a hell of a lot to lose if there's not good vaccine campaigns soon. Small business being one of them, universities, travel industry, you can go on and on, hospitality industries. There's whole sectors of the of our society and our economy, church leadership, faith community, who are going to go, wait a second, you know, we need to get the people back in the door safely. We need them to be coming back and reconnecting to us as a business, as a community, whatever, uh, as an educational institution. And if we don't get it, we're paying a huge price. I think what Chris just said about the, you know, professional athletes, you know, is going to go a long way. And I also think, Chris, and I wonder what you think about this. There's a lot of talk about companies like Clear, which give you, you know, 
quick access to the airport, giving you an app on your phone that's going to say, I've been vaccinated, and that's going to allow you entry to a stadium or entry to a movie theater. Do you think that that kind of technology is going to be prevalent going forward to allow you access to you know, universities or, or certain things or, you know, maybe maybe certain institutions are going to keep people out that aren't vaccinated? You know, it goes back a bit to does the vaccine protect you or does it also protect others from getting infected? Right. So if the vaccine does not block transmission or we're not sure yet, or it's like the AstraZeneca study suggests it's, you know, about 50, 60 percent of those vaccinated block infection and the, the rest just get protected from severe disease, then I think the role of that will be smaller, right? Because unless you're saying it's risk mitigation for the convener, so I'm only going to let people in who are very unlikely to die. But if it's you want to make it a safe place for anybody who's there, if the vaccine doesn't stop transmission, you know, people will be worried because they might get infected. They may go back and infect their, their elderly parents. So the anxiety will still be there. Who am I to make predictions around that? But I'm... I'm not sure that we will see that sort of vaccination passport idea becoming a huge thing unless we get some good news on, you know, transmission blocking of of some of the, you know, let's say the mRNA vaccines where we don't have any information. I agree with you. Um, We've we've started looking at this issue a little bit internally at CSIS. I think we're going to be falling back on tests, rapid tests, reliable, ever more reliable, both antigen and PCR tests to get ourselves in and out of situations because having been vaccinated is going to be so ambiguous as to what you're getting. And it's stigmatizing and discriminatory for those who didn't get it. And we don't know what the difference is yet between those who get immunity from being infected and getting ill versus those who are vaccinated. And as you point out, there's 15% out there. And, and that's, that's a bit of a, a mystery of identifying all those people. And that's going to force some very difficult issues. Do you think that in terms of our political culture, our divisions, there's a large part of our population who continue to deny the seriousness of this problem? It's one of those enduring features over the course of this year that I think has really shocked people. And we're making rational person arguments here that, oh, as this gets introduced, some of those things will fall away. But we, what we have seen is 300,000 people get killed by this disease. And we had people in town here this week, along with our 700 Proud Boys, we had 15,000 people, no masks, you know, in the bars, in the hotels, totally defiant, totally brazen and defiant about coming into our community and spreading disease. They didn't give a shit. And they were just part of a much deeper, bigger, and I, I would be surprised if those people are out there deciding to give it all up. I don't know. Something says to me that we have a problem in our hands in political culture. Yeah. You know, it. There's a, there is a subset out there that are, you know, aggressively denying, certainly not helpful. I think if you look at the data, I think many, not all, but most are pretty much in the 20 to 29-year-old age group, which are, you know, not surprisingly at pretty low risk. So in some ways, it's rational behavior on their part. And so, you know, the the sort of good news inside that is that even if you know people like that, I think people who are at real risk with comorbidities or older are being 
so far pretty cautious, uh, not cautious enough. That's why we have 3,000 deaths a day. But still, you know, I do think on balance, we are a couple of bad months ahead, maybe three, and we are heading towards a better outcome. Let me, I know your time's running short. Let me ask you two other variables. One is economic distress. I mean, we are living in a pretty desperate time, so lots of people are acting, living in a bit of desperation. Uh, worse, our stimulus money's run out months back. We're in gridlock and getting new money forward. Okay, maybe that motivates people to get vaccinated more quickly, but also it's going to stoke a sense of desperation and anger and frustration. The other thing that's happening is we, we've never had a political transition like this one in which you have the loser in the presidential race refusing to accept that and glomming onto a, a strategy of sabotage and a strategy of continuing to fight that, to hold that base and to resist and de delegitimize. So we're going to have the surge, the introduction of vaccines, all of these things happening in a period of economic distress and an unprecedented period of political contestation around the basic legitimacy. How do those things, do you think, shape behavior in this period? You know, those are the wild card factors that make the forecasting business pretty tough. I think, you know, the, the hard choice there about further economic hardship, we will see, even though the markets don't seem to be recognizing it, I think we'll see many states act to stop hospitals being overwhelmed. That's going to make that economic hardship worse. It'll depend very much on whether the stimulus bill and the details. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it can be a bad combination for sure. Uh, and it's very hard to know how that political illegitimacy type issue will play out. On the other hand, you know, if you know somebody who's sick or dying has an incredible ability to focus the mind and the heart. And I think that that will mean that communities will actually act and we will get through, albeit with a lot of individuals dying this next couple of months. And that at that point, we'll get that, you know, maybe it's a triple win. You know, we've got the vaccination going up, seasonality going down, and maybe moving on politically to a, a more stable situation. How has IHME changed in this period? And is it permanent? You guys are a different creature, I would expect, at the end of this year than you were at the beginning of this year. Yeah, no, that's a great question, uh, Steve, which is, and we spent a, quite a bit of time thinking about it. I think we have seen the route from analysis and, and modeling to decisions by political leaders shorten, narrow. You know, yeah. we, we have a much more direct connection all around the world to uh, political leaders and that's a really interesting set of opportunities. Carries some risks too, doesn't it? Some real risks. You know, how do you how do you maintain the integrity of the science, but also be timely so that you can actually answer real questions? And I think that's the big challenge. It's it's a very exciting challenge, but I do think it raises all sorts of interesting things. And you know, CSIS has always been in the business of trying to change and inform political leaders. So you're few steps ahead of the, the rest of us. But I do think it's it's changed us and it, it certainly got us focused on how we do that well in the future. Well, my impression from a distance is you guys have had a great year, that you've made enormous contributions. You've taken some hits like everybody who's stepped out and tried to make sense of all of this. 
and nobody's had a, nobody's batting a thousand in any of this stuff. But you guys have made enormous contributions, and I think you should end this year feeling pretty damn good as an institution. Yeah, you're batting about nine seventy five. <laughs> so we asked you the last time you were on here to tell us what gives you hope. Maybe that's changed. Has your basis of your hope and optimism changed? You know, I think we've seen just this extraordinary event of science stepping up. I mean, just think about the vaccine. It's just extraordinary. So, you know, we should just be, I had nothing to do with it, but my goodness, I'm proud to be part of the scientific community to see, you know, new problem, record time to come up with a solution. And now we're arguing and debating appropriately how we're going to scale it up and all the challenges. But my goodness, we're living in an era where science has been so central to thinking about how we, you know, solve this problem and coming up with new tools. So truly inspiring. Well, thank you, Chris. This was a great conversation. Thanks for making the time and crazy period on a historic day. And I wish you and your family the best for the holidays. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Happy holidays, Chris. Thank you so much for everything and all your service to our country and to the world. 